Uh, I want to speak this morning uh, about uh, journeys. Um, the Bible, uh, someone has said, is actually a book about journeys. Uh, we think of Israel's journey to the promised land. Uh, we think of how uh, the prophets Samuel and Elijah and Elisha uh, all ministered on journeys. We think of Mary and Joseph and uh, their journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Uh, we think of Jesus' journey uh, that finally led him uh, to Jerusalem and the cross. And last week, of course, uh, Leslie uh, brilliantly brought us uh, that great message on uh, Paul's last journey uh, to Rome, interrupted by that uh, terrible storm and shipwreck that left him washed up on the island of Malta. And uh, Leslie deftly drew out four points for us uh, to help us when we go through storms, recognize that storms pass, get your bearings, light a fire, and shake off a snake, great stuff. But all these journeys ended, uh, they reached a terminus. Uh, this morning, I want to look at a journey that never actually reached a goal, um, and perhaps it never will. Uh, and I'm referring, of course, to the life of Abraham, and uh, it's found in uh, Genesis chapters 11 through 25. Uh, since Christian life is described regularly as a walk, for example, we're exhorted to walk in the spirit in Galatians 5, uh, to walk by faith in 2 Corinthians 5, to walk in newness of life, Romans 6, uh, as just a few instances. Um, I, I hope we're going to find that Abraham's journey may be instructive to our own journey through life. I've elected to, uh, uh, to hang my uh, message on uh, the text in Hebrews 11, verses eight to 11, where we read, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place where he was to receive an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham is one of the towering figures of human history. Uh, he's of special significance to us because of the unique relationship in which we stand uh, to him. Uh, bear with me in another quote, this time from Galatians 3, where Paul writes, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Did you catch that little phrase? Those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. 
What does it mean to be a son of Abraham? I recall the tense uh, confrontation that uh, took place in John 8 between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. Uh, they were offended because Jesus declared that he was doing the will of his father uh, and that God was his father. And they angrily retorted, Abraham is our father. And Jesus agreed that as ethnic Jews, they had a genetic link to the patriarch. But he counted, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. Uh, the term father is sometimes used in the Bible, uh, not in the genetic sense, but in the sense of the first one of a kind. Uh, for example, Genesis 4.21 states that Jubal was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. And since a piano is a lyre on its side, that would mean that, a, that Jubal uh, is my father. I'm a pianist one of those kind who play the lyre. And this is the sense that Jesus was using, which Paul picked up on. He's saying that Abraham is the first of a particular line of people, people of faith, people whose faith, like Abraham's, is evidenced by their actions or their works, uh, which is the same point that is made by James in his letter in chapter two. So it's these kinds of people, people of faith, who are his sons, his tribe, his clan. At this point, I, I want to quote a working definition of the faith that I'm talking about. And I've taken it from something Tom Wright wrote. He said, faith is not a general religious attitude to life. It's not simply believing difficult or impossible things for the sake of it, as though credulity was itself a virtue. Faith hears the promise of God, the assured word of the world's creator that he is also its redeemer, and that it is through the strange fortune of Abraham's family that is the people of faith, that he is working out this eternal purpose. And that's what I want us to think about as we follow Abraham's story. Do you know, Abraham's faith journey began from the town of Haran in what is now uh, modern Southeast Turkey. He has a word from the Lord. Um, how it happened and how he recognized it, we're not told, which is uh, one of the things I'd like to know when I finally meet him. But he sets out south, and for the rest of his life, he's on the move. He will stay in some places for a period of time, sometimes lengthy, but he will never put down roots or build a permanent place called home. His journey embraces extraordinary events, but a great deal of the time it's very ordinary. It has highs and lows, joys and sorrows, 
times when nothing is happening and times when everything is happening. But the unique feature of his journey is that it never reaches a final destination. Abraham never arrives. His journeying never finishes. Hebrews 11.13 says that he and others died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen and greeted them from afar and recognized that they were strangers and wanderers in the land. So I want to pick up on the two elements that the writer to the Hebrew Hebrews uh, features about Abraham's journey. Uh, the first thing is that it consists of a perennial leaving. Of course, all journeys start with the leaving, but Abraham's leaving was extraordinary in the extreme. Uh, granted that people uh, lived longer back then, but at 75 years of age, uh, when perhaps Abraham could have been looking to uh, relax and uh, taking life a bit easier, uh, being no spring chicken, he must have been surprised when God called him. And God required him to leave everything that was familiar and loved, his home, his wider family, his natural desire for security, safety, and a settled, comfortable lifestyle to journey into a strange foreign land where he would be regarded with suspicion as an outsider and to live in a tent with all the insecurity and vulnerability that that entails, having absolutely no idea where he was, where he was going, or what lay ahead for him and Sarah. And furthermore, says the writer, he would be living in tents and nomad, moving from place to place, sometimes because his flocks needed fresh pasture, sometimes because the native inhabitants didn't want him around, sometimes because he decided to move, and sometimes because God directed him. But it all meant he had to keep leaving and move on over and over again. In short, Abraham is called to a life that from a human perspective was the epitome, epitome of uncertainty and mystery, walking by faith in a God that at the start of his journey, he hardly knew. Now, Abraham is not an idol for us to admire and say, well, he's a, he's a one-off. He's actually a model for us to emulate, as indicated by the first verse of the following chapter in Hebrews. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run the race that is set before us. It's the same journey. The logic is, if Abraham and, and the rest of the people of faith can do it, so can we. Like him, then, we are called to be travelers, not settlers, to experience change, to embrace unpredictability, to expect disruption, and as a result, encounter fresh discovery. 
Now, just to be clear, I'm talking about mindset, not actual mileage. Uh, there will be some, such as apostles, where travel may feature in their faith journey. But we can keep moving on in God, even if we never move house. It's our life in God that is not intended to be static. But I find there's the rub, since for most people, being settled and comfortable is a very human default desire. We all swing to it as surely as a compass needle swings north. We love stability, security, order, the familiar and the trusted, what we're used to. We don't mind a couple of weeks on holiday overseas, overseas, but then after a couple of weeks, we get itchy. We want to get back home to that which is familiar. Uh, for many, the pandemic and all these lockdowns was an adventure for the first few weeks. But now all we want is to get back to the old normality. I, I observe that when we go to church, we all sit in the same places. I gather from Tristan that when we go back, they're going to uh, uh, change the chair, the chair layout. But I'm pretty sure in a, in a few weeks, we'll all be sitting in the same new places again because we like uh, or we dislike change. Now, the tendency in our natural lives is often reflected in our spiritual lives too. Uh, for this reason, Paul urged Timothy, stir up the gift of God that is within you. Uh, Paul urges the Christians, he says, stir yourselves up to love and good works. Uh, we sometimes sing a song, don't we? There must be more than this. Uh, asking the spirit of God to stir up within us a passion for his name. Uh, but I wonder if the reality is that we're reluctant to respond to the spirit leading us to live by faith because it means leaving our comfort zone of present experience and knowledge to enter the unknown where change and uncertainty are the preconditions to new encounters with God. I've come to see that the opposite of faith is not doubt. It's actually certainty. For certainty has everything worked out, everything is fixed, nailed down, written in stone. But faith is redundant when there is certainty. Faith operates in the arena of doubts and questions, of divine delay and silences, of not knowing, the realm of the unseen and of the humanly impossible. The only constant in the life of faith is the Lord God Almighty, the creator and sustainer of all things. And even there, as I shall show in a minute, there is to be continuing progression and movement. So to live by faith, one has to constantly leave where one is at. Absent this, we settle. And when we settle, we stagnate. The second element that the, uh, of the journey that uh, the writer of the Hebrews talks about 
is, is a perpetual learning, a perennial leaving, a perpetual learning. You see, Abraham did not become a paragon of faith at his call. He strayed from the path of faith on a number of occasions. Uh, but God never castigates or punishes him for doing so, uh, though Abraham has to live with the consequences. You see, you have to learn the way of faith. And mistakes are valuable teaching experiences. So the first thing that Abraham had to learn was to discern between faith and belief. On entering Canaan for the first time, famine hits the land in Genesis 12, and Abraham moves his family to Egypt. God didn't tell him to go there. Abraham believed it was the sensible, the obvious action to take. But we read the story and discover that his belief got him into trouble. He had to resort to lying and deception. And had not God intervened, it might have destroyed his marriage as well as God's purpose for his life by Sarah becoming Pharaoh's concubine. So he had to return from Canaan back, uh, return from Egypt back to Canaan back to the place where he'd started to live by faith. Then in Genesis 16, again, after 12 years in Canaan, Abraham, who has recently received God's covenanted promise that he would father a son from whom would descend a family more numerous than the stars of space, Abraham is frustrated that he and Sarah are still childless. And talking together, they come to the belief that God has left Sarah barren and that the only way the promise can be realized is to adopt the pagan practice of surrogacy, where Sarah's slave Hagar bears Abraham a son legally regarded as Sarah's. But this was not part of God's purpose, and it backfired spectacularly and incidentally created huge painful consequences still being played out in the Middle East today. You see, in both instances, Abraham's belief was genuine, but it was not true faith. So while belief and faith are valid, both valid entities and, and uh, Certainly in language terms, they share an etymological root. They are not synonymous. A belief is an idea that a person holds to be true. It may actually be true. On the other hand, it may not. For example, almost 50% of the USA's population today have a genuine belief that the last presidential election was rigged, despite there being no real evidence to, to support that. <clears throat> Excuse me. By contrast, a few days ago, the world's cosmological community was thrown into confusion because recent scientific, scientific discoveries about dark matter in space 
shattered a core belief about the nature of the universe. In the former instance, people tenaciously cling to their belief. In the latter instance, the scientists acknowledge that they must ditch their old belief and find a better explanation. So what is more important? What we believe to be true or what is actually true? In Jesus' time, the Jewish leaders were the evangelicals of the period. They studied and searched the scriptures. They debated and they defined their beliefs about the person and the nature of God and of the kingdom of God. You can read it in their Talmud. And then Jesus comes on the scene with a different view about God, about his kingdom and the way it operates. And the Jewish leaders would not leave. Not could not leave, they would not leave their long held beliefs to embrace the truth that Jesus proclaimed, even though it was endorsed by the signs and wonders he did. And their solution to the impasse was to crucify him. For to follow Jesus' way of faith would destroy their position as the guardians of Jewish faith. You see, belief is a product of information we have imbibed or obtained by our life experiences. It's a product of the human mind. It's valid and it's valuable as far as it goes. But beliefs change. When I became a Christian 60 odd years ago, my church gave a series of teachings entitled Fundamental Truths. I took it all on board. But over the years, I've discovered that much of what I was taught was neither fundamental nor true. It was the belief of the day. But it got officially changed, officially changed. The leaders of the movement uh, changed their fundamental truths because fresh insight was gained in expanded biblical understanding and interpretation. And this has always been the case down through church history. Uh, we are Protestants because uh, Martin Luther happened to uh, uh, bring a new teaching about justification by faith. Uh, Martin Luther then persecuted the Anabaptists uh, because uh, they saw the importance of water baptism. And, and down even to the a uh, hundred years ago when the Pentecostals were persecuted for believing that the gifts of the spirit uh, had, had not uh, disappeared. And uh, so it has always been. Very often the previous uh, uh, recipients of new revelation persecute the, the next wave of fresh revelation that comes in. You see, beliefs change, but faith doesn't. Despite all the things that have changed in my beliefs, my faith in God is still absolutely certain and secure. The fact is that Christians disagree on many matters of belief. You see, it's not my job to tell you what to believe. The scriptures say, let every man be persuaded in his own mind. 
one has to develop the capacity to think for oneself. But belief is not faith. Abraham's belief was that impotent husbands and barren wives couldn't have children. It was an unassailable fact proven throughout all human experience. But when he and Sarah, still learning the way of faith, became willing to lay aside that long-established belief and be open to God's omnipotence working in them, a delighted 100-year-old and his overjoyed 90-year-old wife obtained in due time a physical makeover and produced the promised baby boy. And they're not the only ones. Hebrews 11 speaks of a great cloud of them who made the same discovery. Mary, the mother of Jesus, not mentioned among them, but her faith in response to the angelic announcement took precedence over her well-founded belief that virgin women don't have babies. So as with Abraham, so with us. To make progress on our journey, faith must lead belief. The second thing that I, I want to quickly look at is that uh, Abraham was learning that faith's prize is God himself. In Hebrews 11, 11, it says he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. If you actually look through Genesis 11 to 25, you will not find reference to a city anywhere. Uh, true, God did promise Abraham a land inheritance, but when the patriarch died, he didn't possess a square foot of territory other than the cave of Machpelah, which he purchased as a burial place. But there's no mention of a city. So it appears that verse 11 is the writer's summary of the tenor of Abraham's life, with all its highs and lows, its fears and failures, its wrestlings and longings, its promises and covenant. The patriarch is constantly developing learning of the nature and the purpose of God that is being outworked in himself and his children who walk by faith. And that purpose is described as a city built by God. And Abraham died in faith, looking forward to seeing it. That same city is spoken of in verse 22 as the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. In Hebrews 13, 14, as the city that is to come. And you can also read it in Revelation 21 and 22. In old Jerusalem, the central sacred space in the temple was a cube-shaped room known as the Holy of Holies. God dwelt there in the form of a blazing white fireball known as the Shekinah, hidden behind curtains and veils, inaccessible to all but the high priest on one day each year. But in the new Jerusalem, there is no temple because the giant cuboid city is itself the Holy of Holies, where God dwells. But there are no barriers, no curtains. God is openly accessible and approachable 24-7 to everybody. It's a city of peace, 
whose only business is the healing of the nations, where the world is put right, where tears are wiped away, where creation is liberated and every act done to achieve this is seen as an act of worship. And here the glory of God, his own presence shines in every street and from every stone. For all this is utterly beyond the power of mankind to accomplish. Only God can design and build this city. Of course, this is all symbolic imagery. This new Jerusalem is not an actual place like Athens or Rome or London. It's the same kind of language that Paul uses in speaking of believers as the temple built together as a dwelling place of God's spirit. But while the language is symbolic, what it speaks of is nevertheless real. One day the earth will be full of the glory of the Lord at the restoration of all things spoken of by the mouth of God's holy prophets. And Jesus said in John 8, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. And the 175-year-old patriarch died in faith, knowing that in the future he would obtain his inheritance. In fact, not just Canaan, but the whole world, sharing it with his family of faith. But the greatest thing Abraham learned that God himself was the prize of faith to know him and to know that there is always infinitely more to know of him is what makes eternity exciting. God is always going to be immeasurably greater than our knowledge of him. Throughout eternity, you and I are going to be constantly discovering there is more and more and more and more to know of God. Our journey is never going to end. The Bible speaks of him, but God is greater than the Bible. And that's why faith will still be required in the age to come. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, and now three things continue forever, faith, hope, and love. The journey of faith will never end. So as I close, may I ask you to look at your own life and ask, have I settled? Is everything still the same today? Is my experience of God the same as it was 10, 15, 20 years ago? Am I discovering new things? Am I finding fresh revelation? Am I enjoying uh, finding out that God can do incredible things to, through me when I am allowing him to direct me into new areas of faith? 2 Peter 3, 18 urges us, grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's more to know than we presently know. And I hope that you and I have enough faith to say, let's go for it.